Hey, this is Pete Bauer. Thanks for joining me on my podcast today. I'm very happy to have Jeff Strand, a very prolific horror writer. I want to thank Jeff for being here today. He does have a cold, so his voice is coming and going, so I appreciate him putting up with that and uh, and participating today. We're going to sit and talk about writing and inspiration and uh, some of the challenges that he has with writing books. But the first question I have, Jeff, is when did being a writer gel in your mind? Like at what age did you want to say, yeah, this is what I want to do? Pretty much forever. I've always, I cannot remember a time when I didn't want to be a writer. The gel part is a little different because, you know, actually focusing on the kind of writing I wanted to do took a long time. You know, at first I wanted to write comic books and then I wanted to write movies and then I wanted to write video games. And I actually, you know, wrote little scripts on how the video games were played and sent them in and got rejected. And it took a really long time. It wasn't until I actually sold my first novel about... 13 years ago that I said, okay, now I'm a novelist. Oh, really? And every once in a while, I will move into other stuff. I've done a couple of screenplays since then. I've done a comic book script recently that I haven't even submitted anywhere just to try that. But really, the year 2000 was where I said, okay, it's gelled. I'm a novelist now. Wow. So how many novels in total have you either written or participated in? Just... I think at this point, it's about 20 books. Wow. So you do this full-time then, right? No, still have a day job, mostly for the insurance, because one of the challenges of being a writer is that it can sometimes be extremely hard to get paid, whereas the day job, every two weeks, the money's in your bank account, everything is fine. But when things go bad on a book deal, and it's much harder for to get paid by a publisher than it is to get paid by the office that you go into every day. So, And the insurance is kind of important. Yeah, so. no, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm in 100% agreement. Yeah. So there have been several times in my writing career where it's like, well, I'm glad I have the day job and I'm not going to be homeless because this publisher went out of business. Or wow. Something like that. So. Now, now, so then when do you find time to write? I mean, it's, it must be just the thing you do when you're not working. Pretty much. And the Evenings, thing... weekends, instead of doing other fun stuff, sit down and write. Like you, in a, in, but a different path. You know, I like started out liking movies, wanted to write screenplays, and then have kind of evolved into writing novels. But the, the whole idea of wanting to be a storyteller from the beginning, right? That's kind right. of the same thing. And I always enjoy it. It's not, you know, when you get close to the deadline and you realize you have a lot of work left to do, it it can become like being a student where you, you know, I wish I hadn't procrastinated until the end, but it's always fun. So for someone that is unfamiliar with your work, you have a very unique voice to me. It's one of the things I enjoy about reading your books is that it has a very interesting mix of, of comedy and horror. So if someone were to ask you, what kind of books do you write and, and how would you explain it? Basically, horror comedy is the accurate description. I kind of change up the mixture. So I do some that are really heavy on the comedy with just a little bit of horror and some that are really heavy on the horror with just a little bit of comedy. The Book Cutter was a conscious attempt to do a really silly premise but treat it with complete seriousness. It's about a horrible serial killer who finds a Boston Terrier puppy and adopts it, and basically it turns him into a better person. So it's sort of the heartwarming transformation of a monster who tortures people into you know, not a wonderful guy, but a much better person. But I decided to take, you know, it's a goofy premise, and I decided to treat it just completely straight. So when did you find yourself drawn towards horror stories? At what age did that, did that click for you? It was actually kind of late. As a kid, I didn't like horror at all because I was completely squeamish. Even 
Even Star Trek II completely freaked me out, where the things went to the guy's ears. That gave me nightmares for a week. Alien gave me nightmares for a week. So I didn't like any horror. So it really wasn't until high school that I started reading Stephen King that I actually started to get into it and I started to watch horror movies. I had always wanted to be a writer, but I wanted to write humor. So I just wanted to write comedy novels. And actually, my first three or four novels were just comedy novels. There was no element of horror at all. And then I did one novel, Grave Robbers Wanted, No Experience Necessary, which actually was supposed to be a comedy mystery. But then it ended up being much darker than I planned and went into horror. And that was kind of the part where I decided that I needed to focus my um, my niche a little bit. And I said, okay, I'm going to do horror comedy. And so that's what I have mostly stuck through until really recently. Now I've got a new book called um, I Have a Bad Feeling About This, which has no horror element whatsoever. It's a YA sort of an action comedy, but really a comedy, not even that much action. But until that, from Grave Robbers Wanted until the book I wrote before, I have a bad feeling about this, it was pretty much all horror comedy. A conscious attempt to focus on that. One thing I'm always interested in is that moment where, I, I have a theory, and I don't know if it's true or not, but I have a theory that at some point for creative people, something clicks in them that they then are inspired to want to recreate for others. Like for me, uh, my my most memorable movie experience was Rear Window. I saw that in college. It was before video was available. So it actually, they had to get the movie and show it at the student union as part of film class. And that that group experience with a Hitchcock movie was so awesome to me that I said, that's what I want to do. I want to recreate that if possible. And so I, I was just wondering if, if that... If my theory is correct, like when you read those Stephen King books, did they resonate with you that you're like, yeah, this is how I want to, this is this feeling I want to make other people feel? It wasn't really th anything with horror that I so much wanted to replicate. I think it was seeing the naked gun for the first time in the theater. <laughs> and I just, I had no idea that you could, it was possible to squeeze that many jokes into a single movie where the entire movie, an hour and a half, would just laugh, 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 laugh. And... The first couple of screenplays I wrote tried to mimic that. Not well. You know, there was a point where it should be all good laughs instead of a joke, no matter what. I had written comedy before that, but the pacing was really inspired by just, you know, I want to do screenplays that have no dead spaces, just one joke after another. And that kind of worked its way into my first novel, How to Rescue a Dead Princess, which is sort of like a Zucker Brothers movie in novel form. On the good side, there's a lot of parts in the book where it would have been better off to just play it straight a little bit instead of trying to fit in a joke every single paragraph. But to answer your question, it really came from seeing the naked gun and saying, wow, you can squeeze in more jokes than I thought it was ever possible and trying to replicate that. That's pretty funny. I mean, that is like 180 degrees of what I thought <laughs> would be the answer. <laughs> That's awesome. But the horror genre is a very, I mean, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Because, I mean, horror films, if they're low budget or high budget or whatever, there's an audience for that. Books, novels, young mm -hmm. adult, vampire. I mean, there just seems to be, it's it's a great niche to have skills in, I think. I mean, I, I, I when I was looking at uh, micro-budget filmmaking, you know, 10 years ago, I was like, man, if, if I just loved horror more, I could really do well in this space, you know, because fantasy lovers, horror lovers are just so forgiving. They just enjoy the the ride. Horror fans are the most loyal fans there are because, you know, you can do sequel after sequel after sequel and the horror fans will say, you know what, I'm going to continue to support this no matter how many times they've been burned. It's like, you know what, this one could be good. Jason 10. Jason 10. 
it does, you know, maybe it'll be good, as good as Jason 2, but probably not. And they know going in, it's probably not going to be, but it's really the only genre I can think of where the fans will stick with it, you know, until every last drop of blood has been wrung out of a franchise. A lot of times to the detriment of the genre because it's, you know, they should have stopped at Paranormal Activity 3, but they had to keep going until they made a crappy one. But, you know, I saw Paranormal Activity 4 opening night. I was there. I had to see it because it might have been as good as the first one. And yeah, it's a good genre to be in because the horror fans tend to be lifelong fans and they're very loyal and they see everything that comes out. Oh, one thing I like, because you mentioned earlier about publishers kind of going out of business and what have you. And, and so you've been writing long enough that you've been part of this transition from traditional publishing to electronic publishing and Amazon and create space and what have you. What has been your experience in that process? I mean, what are some of the pros and cons of of that transition in your experience? I've had a great experience with it. The reason I mostly got into it was, well, I had a book called Wolf Hunt, and it was all set to be out through a major publisher. It's going to be in bookstores everywhere, you know, the $7.99 mass market paperback in airports, everything. And basically, the publisher didn't go out of business, but they had massive problems and they canceled their horror line. And this was in September, and the book was set to come out in December. But I, as you know, as I had mentioned in the earlier uh, question, I hadn't been paid for it, so it you know it wasn't a huge devastating loss. But basically, I had a book that I had been promoting as a upcoming release, and it wasn't coming out. So I had all the they gave me all the rights back, mostly because they hadn't paid for it. And so I thought, you know, instead of giving it to my agent, going through the years of submission process, I'll just put it out on Kindle, get the book out when it was supposed to be out. And it turned out it worked really well. And because Amazon is such a big part of the book industry now, that sort of evens out the distribution. It used to be if you're not in bookstores, people aren't going to find your book, so you need to be with the publisher. Now people have Kindles. If I self-publish a book through Amazon, it's as available as any book through any major publisher. Financially, you get 70% royalties as opposed to whatever the big publishers are offering. It varies now, but it's not 70%. So Wolf Hunt, the version I did myself, did not sell as many copies as it would have had it been through the major publisher because it wasn't in bookstores. It didn't have the same level of distribution, but I made a ton more money because I get a much bigger piece of the pie. So just from a purely financial level, it makes sense. If you've got, you know, I went into it with a fan base because it was you know, my 16th or 17th novel. So I didn't have to say, hey, look, you know, I have no track record, but I'm putting this book out myself. I had the track record. So the vetting process on my work had already been done. So I didn't have to say, look, I'm a real writer. You know, I had stuff out there. I had people who were waiting for the book. So that part was a little bit easier. Although new writers have had just as much success because just as you can browse books on the bookstore shelves, you can get your free ebook sample. So if you say, well, I don't know about this guy, but I'll give it a chance. You can get the first couple chapters for free. And if it's bad, you haven't spent anything. If it's good, you pick it up. So it worked really well. You get, you know, if you're a control freak, it's a really good thing because you don't get stuck with a cover you don't like. The publisher's not going to change your title. Now, very often the publisher was absolutely right about the cover, and very often the publisher was absolutely right about the title, and editing is very important. So there's lots of things where you need to take on the responsibility, and you need to actually know what you're doing or bring in someone who does. So it's not a case of just throwing out whatever you've got, and you're going to be extremely rich. 
But one advantage that I've had in self-publishing is that my wife, Lynn Hansen, does my covers. So that makes it a lot easier for me and a lot cheaper. And also because she has strong opinions about covers and I generally have no opinions about my covers. Whenever I have to fill in the question you're saying what I want, I have no idea. I'm not, I don't tend to think visually, which is why I would never be a good filmmaker. I, I have no idea what I want on the cover, but she has a really good idea. And, and her website is www.lynnhansendesign.com. If you're going to self-publish, you, you take on all you know, the professional behavior that in many cases your publisher would have taken on. And you, you have to be comfortable with promotion because you're not going to throw a book up on Kindle and have lots of people buy it. You have to get your name out there. You have to do the promotion that maybe the marketing department would have done. Or if it was a small press, you may have been doing it yourself anyway, or even with larger presses. So you know, the publishing world... It's been a long time since it's been, oh, my publicist does all that work. So you really, you have to market yourself anyway. So you might as well be getting 70%. I'm working with both now. You know, there's lots of stuff that I have self-published. I'm still working with major publishers. When I did A Bad Day for Voodoo, that was my first young adult novel. And I don't have the first clue of how to market a young adult novel. So if I had tried to self-publish that, it wouldn't have been a success because I wouldn't have known where to go. I wouldn't have been able to get the Publisher's Weekly Review. I wouldn't have been able to get it into libraries, which is a huge part of what Sourcebooks did. They got it to the librarians. They got it to the reviewers. They, For that particular book, it needed a publisher. They did a fantastic job with it, and they're publishing my next young adult. So you, know, you have to be aware of your own limitations. I don't know what to do with a young adult novel, and they did, so it worked. Something like Wolf Hunt, I knew how to get it to the horror fans. If I write a horror novel, I know how to promote it. I know where to get it. I know how to get the reviews. So I can do that myself. So it's really, I'm working with both. I want the bookstore distribution and I want the 70% royalties that come from self-publishing. So I'm I'm not um, strictly loyal to either side. I do both and both have worked out well for me. So when you're dealing with these with these different books, how many books do you have in various stages at the same time, from inception to writing to rewriting to near publishing? I'm really bad about that. I need deadlines. That's one of the things where self-publishing can be a hindrance for me is I need someone telling me to turn in a book at a certain time or I'm in trouble. With my book, Dweller, I got a really good publication slot when the contract was offered with the expectation that the book would be turned in on time no matter what, no room for error. It was, you know, you're not going to get two extra weeks on this, you know, we will give you a really good publication slot because a lot of times you have to wait for months or years for the book to come out. With the case of Dweller, I didn't have to, but it was the book has to be turned in on this day no matter what. And it was. So I didn't let them down, but I kind of need that sort of thing because otherwise I come up with other really cool ideas that I want to work on. And then suddenly I'll have eight books in progress and none finished. Is this you continually rewriting the book that is theoretically due, or is this you procrastinating or straying off the path on other books? So, Not procrastinating, straying off the path. I rewrite a lot as I go, but it's never, oh, I just need to do one more draft. I don't have a problem finishing books just because I'm rewriting them. I tend to go back through what I've already written, but I'm always there's always forward momentum. I never hit a point where it's like I'm so caught up in the rewrites that I don't get ahead. I just have a tendency to get distracted. So, you know, I'm always writing, but maybe I'll have 
six different books that I've done 15,000 words on. And if I had done all that on one book, it would be done. Which, when I was working exclusively with publishers, wasn't really a problem because I pretty much everything I've written for the past 12 or 13 years has been sold before it came out. So there's always a deadline and it's, you know, there's always someone waiting on the book. My biggest weakness as a writer is probably the ability to get distracted on multiple projects, but I do. I like deadlines and sometimes it's even self-imposed deadlines. One nice thing about having a fan base is that I can create my own deadlines. The fourth Andrew Mayhem book was called Lost Homicidal Maniac Answer to Shirley, and it didn't technically have a deadline because I decided I, you know, the Andrew Mayhem series has the fan base, I can do it myself. But by announcing on Facebook and Twitter and my newsletter, this book will be out December 31st, 2011. It had to be out December 31st, 2011, or I was going to have lots of angry readers. So I kind of figured out a way to create my own deadlines, even though it wasn't a real deadline. There was no one who was going to take back their advance if I didn't turn in the book. I just you know, made it public, and then I was suddenly you know, committed to this deadline that I made up myself. Yeah, that's that's very interesting because I had read a, a book about, it was about writing film projects, I think, at the time. But they talked about that the, one of the best ways to make sure you get done is tell everyone you're doing it and right. when it's going to be done. Because they'll, they're the ones that keep asking you, well, is it done? Oh, how's that book going? How's that? And and that you're right, that, that, that public knowledge becomes your own right. personal and driver. It can backfire if you're a new writer and you just think, well, I'm going to tell everyone and I'm going to finish this book by the end of August and... Then I have to do it. It can turn it into a really frustrating experience. So you don't you want to still create reasonable deadlines, and you don't want to turn in a subpar product. If I hit the end and thought, "Wow, the fourth Andrew Mayhem book is garbage," I wouldn't have published it. You know, I wasn't going to publish it no matter what. But I had committed myself, so I I didn't absolutely have to put the book out. But I there was enough of a punishment if I didn't. It would have been embarrassing and awkward. But I wouldn't have put it out if it wasn't the best book that I thought it could be at the time. Yeah, and I think that's one of the mistakes that, that young writers have had. I mean, I'm, I'm new to the novel writing process, so but I've been writing screenplays for 25 years. But I think one of the, the challenges for young writers is that they think their early drafts have captured everything either they need to or that they thought they did. Right? right. And then that's where if you put it away for six months and you look at it, you realize, I thought I expressed that better. Or, wow, this whole thing is missing that was in my head. And and so you're right. I think it's so important that, especially for young writers, not to set a deadline out of ignorance. Right. It's like right. you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what the editing process takes. You don't know what the design cover process takes. You don't know what the marketing analysis is going to take and how you're going to structure all that. So to sit there and make an arbitrary date will just set you up to fail. Right. A new writer should never, you know, if you want to publicize a date when you're going to finish your book, you know, so your friends will be waiting for it, that's fine. You should never publicize a date when the book is going to be published because it might not be ready. And that's one downside to it being so easy to get stuff published now is that you might not be ready. With screenwriting, there's pre-production work. So if you write a screenplay in a weekend and you think it's brilliant, you're going to have to cast it. You have to find the locations. There's going to be time to say, wow, maybe this isn't quite as good as I thought it was going to be. And there's going to be other feedback. You're going to have actors saying, wow, these lines don't work. Or you're going to hear the actors read the lines and realize that it don't work. You have to edit it together. There's more of a vetting process with a screenplay. You actually have to make the screenplay. Whereas a book, you could write the book in a weekend and put it up on 
Amazon the next day and have people paying for it and say, wow, this is the worst book I've ever read. Let me cross him off the list of authors. And maybe your fifth or sixth book is a lot better, but they read the first one. If my first book had been published, I would not be on my 20th book because people would have quit reading me because when I started writing, there was a vetting process. And so my horrible thousands of pages of unpublishable material never got published. And I can tell you, had it been that easy when I first started, it would have been published because I was not aware that the books I wrote when I was 20 were awful. I thought that they were as good as anything that was on the bestseller list. And I realized later that they were not. And I don't know how you can actually teach people this lesson, but yeah, you should not be in a hurry to get stuff published. It requires a lot of self-discipline. Again, your excitement of creating something, you want to share that with everybody. And, I, and I've apologized with the, the Gabby Wells novel I'm writing. I've apologized to my daughter and my wife profusely for having read so many awful versions of it. Because I'm like, oh, I finally, I finally figured this out. And then they read it and like, well, not really. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, I'm so, so, thank God. Tell people, don't let anyone read your first like 10 drafts. Just don't. As good as you think it is, it really isn't. It really isn't. Unless you've you know been doing it a while and then you can know how to anticipate things, but for for, for new writers. But and a lot of people aren't taking your approach of make it as good as possible before I put it up and get lots of feedback. There's a lot of people are just in a rush. So they'll finish the book, think it's brilliant, put it up, and it's not so brilliant. And Yeah, it's yeah. pretty frustrating. I, I'm reading a book now that was self-published, and it has so many good qualities it just needed a real editor to take out the bad qualities. Like, I'm re I really want to know how the story ends. I just don't know if I want to read it to get there. But I, it, right. it's, it's a frustrating combination. You know, there's some just some some just basic things that drive me nuts. Like, that he will refer to, there's one character that, that has four, four names in his name. Like, you know, I don't make the name up. You know, John David John Smith, right? And this person will call him Smith or John Smith or John D whatever smith and john david smith and so every time i read the page i don't know which person i'm reading you know what i mean like that little right. stuff you're like why are you making me think about this guy's name 50 pages into this it's that kind of stuff where you really need that objective viewpoint someone skilled that's been in the the business a while to go look this is never done just cut it out right you need the middle ground between when i started which was you know, years in the slush pile versus having it up before it has actually been you know actually proofread or edited. And having written so many screenplays, I can tell you that writing screenplays is a lot easier in this sense. It's the structure of it, the outline of it is, makes the story has to be very compact and you just, you have to move, right? There's no real tangents. You you run on, on a screenplay because of the, there's only so many pages. And also it's a blueprint as opposed to a finished product, right? It's like you said, there's, there's a lot of people who are gonna come in. It's like you're giving a blueprint to a general contractor, the director, and the general contractor is going to decide whether he wants two bathrooms instead of one or he wants to change it from, from Canada to Florida. So, you know, it's, it's to me, when, I, when I've written screenplays, it's, it's been like, well, I'm trying to get the concept to the best that it needs to be at this level, knowing that the actors are going to change lines, the budget's going to change locations, the director's going to have their own vision. And you just kind of, so there's kind of like a, an easier kind of, all right, this is, this is good. This is a really good screenplay, but it's not, I don't have to worry about making it the best finished product, that's someone else's job. Writing a novel, you know, when you post it on you know, on, on Amazon, you are the director, you're the writer, you're the set designer, you know, and you're right. the whole you're The, the screenplay has to be as good as you can make it, but it's ultimately going to be skimmed. Yes. Whereas the novel, you hope people read every word, 
screenplay, if you put in a big block of text, it's they're going to skip, skip right it. past it. It's yeah. going to be the actors looking for their name in the dialogue. And Yeah, I remember John reading John Sayles who said that, and he goes, he knows it's never going to make it in the movie, but when he has a long action sequence, every paragraph he puts in a line that will probably get cut, but he wants the reader to not see a whole page of action. He's like, uh, uh-huh is the line, you know, and oh boy, right? Well, it doesn't matter. Right. He knows they're all going to get cut. All right, so what about, you know, to me, I, the Andrew Mayhem series is, to me, is a perfect movie thing, right? It's a perfect uh, movie franchise, really, in my mind. And with with all the money spent in horror movies, I mean, has that or any of your other books been, you know, nibbled by Hollywood? There's an option on my novel, Pressure, and that's a company called Identity Films. And we're about four years into the process now, so it's a very slow process, and on the fourth year, they finally came to me and said, hey, would you like to write the screenplay? And I said, I absolutely would. So because I'm working on the novels, you know, I haven't had as much time to devote to it as I would like, but I finally got the first draft of the screenplay done and sent back the feedback. And ironically, I agree with every word of it, which is always nice. Now, a lot of it was, but that's not what you said the first time, but that's okay because I still I agree with it. <laughs> I have so, been there, done that, yeah. Because I had to get the outline approved before I started writing on a screenplay based on my own novel. And there was a lot of notes that exactly 180 degrees contradicted notes from the last draft of the outline. That's a pretty funny thing. That's happened to me many times. And you're just like, I need to audio record the meeting where they discuss what they want because you'll write exactly what they want. And then they come back and go, well, that's not what I wanted at all. And then one draft of the outline was make it exactly like the book. The book is great. Every word of the book should be in this movie. And then the next draft was, no, that's not going to be the case. So it's still a work in progress. It's fun. I'm very happy with my first draft of the script. And I agree with all the feedback that's going to go into the second draft. So well, that's good too. I mean, if you trust if you trust the the feedback, whether whether you like it or not, if it's true, then it's true, right? And, right. and I think as I know that's from my experience. I'm sure it's been with yours. Where when you write something, there's certain parts where you're like, oh, I don't know, it just isn't really working. But I, I can't figure out another way to do it right now. So you just got to move on, and then and then people read it and go, Yeah, that doesn't work. You're like, crap. <laughs> they right. saw right through me. Yeah, I mean, so if it, I think inherently we know what where the weak spots are, and and sometimes we hope we can get away with it. And if we're called on it, we're like, yeah, all right. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so there are no changes where it's just like, well, i got to keep the suits happy, even though I don't agree with it. It's like, yep, it's going to be a better script in the second draft. That's good. And then there'll be a third draft that completely contradicts everything <laughs> before. And, but for now, yeah. I'm in the optimistic mode. You talked about your, your experience with... Um, you know, knowing how to market your, your horror books. So you go to conventions and things like that. What are, what are some of the avenues you take and, and you've learned, especially in that genre, are good places to hawk your wares? I love the World Horror Convention, which moves around every year. Next year in May, it's going to be in Portland. This past year, it was in New Orleans. It sort of varies every year. Sometimes it's combined with the Bram Stoker Awards, which I get to MC, which I done for the past five years, which is a lot of fun. Sometimes it's combined with them, sometimes it isn't. In the Portland year, it is, so that would be a good one for horror writers to attend. It's The attendance varies a lot based on the location. I think the New Orleans one had about 600 people, and lots of them are writers. It's very fiction-focused. So that's one that I try to never miss. I go to Nikon every year, and that's a much smaller convention. They cap it at 200 attendees, and it's in Rhode Island every July. 
And that one is, again, also very horror fiction focused. That one's more like a family reunion, except that you like the relatives. And I didn't make that light up myself. I stole that from someone, but it's a good line. It's a good line. So I'm going to steal it. But I'll give James Chambers credit for having said it at the last Nikon, just in case he listens to this and accuses me of plagiarism. But Nikon's a lot of fun. Those are the two that I never miss. Those are the two horror-focused ones. There are lots of other good ones that I haven't actually, that I've heard good things about that I haven't been to, like KillerCon, which is in Las Vegas, um, Horror Find, and there are quite a few good ones. For me here in Florida, there's Spooky Empire every October, which is more media-focused. There's a horror fiction element, but it's more about the movies and visual arts kind of stuff. So I do recommend going to conventions, especially for new writers, and it doesn't necessarily even have to be genre-focused conventions, because a lot of breaking through in the business does come from connections. It comes from knowing people who know people who know people, and going to conventions is where you meet the people. So... I really encourage it, even if it's not pitch sessions, even if it's not um, something where you walk out with a huge book contract, just getting to know people face-to-face, going to panels, going to workshops, hanging out with people in the bar. It's I really strongly recommend it. And in the world of the internet, it's real easy to find them. Pretty much anywhere you live, there's a convention coming to a city near you at some point in the future. Yeah, one of the advices I've always given my kids is who you know gets you in the door and what you know allows you to stay there. So there's no harm in developing the who you know part. Right. When my book, A Bad Day for Voodoo, came out, I did a blog post called, I forget the exact number, but it's something like 35 steps to becoming a published young adult author. And I was able to come up with 35 steps, most of which are knowing people that led to that book being published. And there's no shame in that because anytime someone is successful and say that, you know, I didn't know anyone when I started. You didn't know anyone when you started, but you did by the time you sold your first project. It's very, very rare that there is a legitimate slush pile acceptance. That's part of the business, and that's fine, and embrace it. What are the top five traits that someone who wants to be a writer, what do you think those top five traits have to be? Um, Persistence. There's a lot of rejection in this business, so you need to stick with it. If you're going the traditional publisher route, you need to be aware that you're not going to sell the first thing you send out and you don't want to give up on it. It's not supposed to be easy, so it's fine if it takes you a long time. You need discipline because it takes a long time to write a book. Unless you're really, really good, you're going to be working at it for quite a while, so you need to stick with it. You need a thick skin because people are going to say bad things about you from the moment you start submitting it to the moment it's published. It doesn't end once you're in the system. If I write a book, there's a good chance that I can get it published. I don't get a lot of rejection. But I sure get the one-star reviews on Amazon. Now, they're outweighed by the, you know, the good reviews outweigh them, but I will still sometimes log on, one star, this is the worst book I've ever read. This author should be taken out and shot. So that's not going to go away. Be ready for that. Ability to network. Don't be a jerk. If you go to conventions and you're nice, you actually have a better chance of success than the really, really talented person who people can't stand to be around. When you become insanely successful, you can go Harlan Ellison, but until you reach Harlan Ellison's level of genius and success, you can't behave that way. And then the fifth one, which you can't control, is being lucky. 
there's always going to be, in any creative art, no matter how hard you work, the luck element is going to play a role in it. So you can't control it, but be aware that it's there. And just because someone else has had more success than you, and you think, well, I work just as hard as them, and my books are just as good as theirs, why am I not on the New York Times bestseller list? It could be luck. And if you're aware of that, it makes you less likely to become a bitter shell of a human being. I think the best thing you can control in the luck aspect is being ready for when the opportunity comes. If you're lucky enough to have the opportunity to get published by that would lead you down that path to the bestseller, you want to be ready for that moment. You don't want to, because if that moment passes you by, that may have been your one lucky moment that you that you weren't ready for, yep. and then it's gone. And you want lots of irons in the fire. If you get only the story of how I sold my book, A Bad Day for Voodoo, I sound like I'm just insanely lucky and it's not fair. But that was you know, one of hundreds of opportunities that I was trying to make for myself. So it sounded really lucky, but it was just one of many. So you can make your own luck as well. So what are some of the inventive ways that you uh, promoted your book or books, I should say? Generally, because my books are funny, I just try to convey that in the promotion I do. I'm not that good at in-person promo. I really don't like doing book signings. I do them because it's important to get out there and it your publisher sort of wants to know that you're in the stores promoting the book that they work to get in the stores, but I'm not a big fan of it. There have been some very good book signing experiences and lots of sitting off in the corner lonely for three hours directing people to the nearest restroom experiences. <laughs> you know, actually, I was in a, a local Barnes & Noble, and this woman was getting ready for a book signing, uh, this author. And there was no one waiting for her to show up and other than a Barnes & Noble employee. And I felt bad for her. And then I went back and I looked at her up. I don't remember her name, but she had won these like really high-level awards for her work. And I'm like, here's someone who's really talented, won national claim for being that talented, Right. And some someone in my mind is dropping the ball. If that person or you or it doesn't matter if you're if if you're going to a book signing, someone better make it worth your while. In my mind, I mean, I know it's a requirement, but there's there's a publicity aspect. There's a there's a building a, a need for you to be there that should be equally as as important as you showing up. In my mind, sometimes, but a lot, you know, sometimes they do they take the effort to promote it and people still don't show up, you never know what's going to happen. When I was promoting my book, Pressure, which was my first bookstore release, you know, I would do a signing on a Tuesday night at 8 o'clock in a Barnes & Noble in Florida, and it would go extremely well. I would sell out. There was a crowd of people the whole time. And then I would do another signing for the same book at 8 o'clock on a Tuesday night in Florida, and no one would show up. So it was hard to figure out. that I could not figure out any kind of real rhyme or reason. The only real thing I figured out was that if I tie it into an existing event, it does much better. So if I went and talked to a local writer's group and then did the signing, the signing went much better than if I just popped up at the store and signed for two hours. So I prefer whenever possible to basically link a signing to an existing event. You have a new book, Dead Clown Barbecue which I probably wouldn't mind attending since I don't like clowns. But I was curious, well, tell me a little bit about the book, but where do you get your titles from? Is this something you've come up with or, or the publishers involved with this? Uh, Dead Clown Barbecue was my title. It took me a while to come up with the title. It's my second short story collection. The first one was called Gleefully Macabre Tales. And at one point I had wanted to call the next book More Gleefully Macabre Tales. And I thought, no, nah, I want to give it its own identity. And... The title I came up with after 
you know, brainstorming lots and lots of ideas was 31 Dead Clowns. And then I was putting the book together and I, because it already had a publisher, I realized that I was still trying to decide how many stories to include. You know, I had it down to 90% of the finalized contents, but there was still, you know, the occasional story, well, do I want to include this? Do I not want to include this? So I was still cutting it down. So I didn't actually know the number of final stories at the time that they needed to start promoting it and getting the cover artist working on it. So I thought, well, I can't use 31 dead clowns because I don't know the number of stories. So I basically just did what I do sometimes when I'm stuck on a title is pull out the thesaurus and just, you know, what can I do? Because I knew I wanted the dead clown thing because Dead Clowns is perfect if you write horror comedy. It immediately describes, anything with Dead Clown, the title describes the kind of book that it is. And so, you know, Dead Clown Party, Dead Clown Fiesta, and then I came up with Dead Clown Barbecue. And as soon as I came up with that, yes, that is the title of my second short story collection. You know, sometimes the title just comes right to me. Sometimes it's a case of just sitting down and really brainstorming ideas. The Andrew Mayhem titles have been very difficult to come up with. I know that each one is going to sound like a really deranged personal ad, so I've got Grave Robbers Wanted, No Experience Necessary, Single White Psychopath Seeks Same, Casket for Sale Only Used Once, Lost Homicidal Maniac, Answers to Shirley, all of which involved pulling up real personal ads saying, okay, how can I twist that into something really dark? And it's actually not that easy. Well, they're very funny and memorable. So whatever you're doing, it works. Right. You know, Benjamin's Parasite. I knew it was a book about a guy with a horrific parasite in him. And it took me forever to come up with a funny title for that one. Then once I had Benjamin's Parasite, that was perfect. All right. So and this, this is available now, right? Yes, it's available <laughs> in paperback and a deluxe hardcover edition through Dark Regions Press. And the ebook edition is published by me, and that's available on your local Kindle through Amazon. All right, I'll put all the links on the uh, on the bottom of the page. Thank you very much, Jeff. I know you suffered through your cold. It's been wonderful to have you, and thank you very much for taking time and spending time with me and talking about your work. Well, thank you very much, and I apologize for all the editing you're going to have to do. <laughs> no problem.